Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. We'll be back in just a few seconds with Larry Wilkerson to talk about the situation in the Ukraine. Uh, please don't forget there's a donate button, subscribe and share all the buttons. The billionaires, oligarchs of Russia, who have a very large military industrial complex and, of course, a large fossil fuel industry, have invaded their state that represents them, guided by Putin, has invaded the Ukraine and is fighting against the Ukrainian oligarchs and state. Of course, it will be the kids of Russian working class families and particularly Ukrainian working class families that will pay with their lives. And standing behind this Ukrainian oligarchy is, of course, the American oligarchy with a military industrial complex that dwarfs all others. And in terms of its global footprint, a history of war crimes that dwarfs all others. So any suggestion of moral high ground here that one hears from the Biden administration and the nauseating American media is beyond, uh, un, uh, beyond words to describe. Uh, it's so obvious, actually. But none of that actually forgives or uh, accepts the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is clearly a violation of international law. And there were ways to deal with the Ukrainian threat to Donbass and potential, and I say very potential, uh, NATO threat through Ukraine, because in my opinion, that's certainly not just my opinion, there's no way on earth Ukraine was ever going to be accepted to NATO. Still, the Ukrainian military industrial complex is not small. Ukraine was one of the largest in the top 10 arms exporters in the world. And the only reason they started to drop out of the top 10 arms exporters is because over the last three or four years, they started spending so much money building up the Ukrainian military instead of exporting. So the threat to Donbass was real. But the threat to Russia from Ukraine, I don't see, was real. This all could have been handled without a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Let me back up one step again to the beginning of this rant. Nothing the Russians have done in Ukraine compares what the U.S. did in Iraq and many other places. There's not a moral equivalency here. The war crimes of the United States far surpass Russia or any, any other country. That doesn't mean what Russia, I think, has done in Ukraine is acceptable, forgivable, or justified. At any rate, that's my rant. Now I'm going to introduce the person who you probably came here to actually listen to, and that's Larry Wilkerson. Uh, Larry was the chief of staff for Colin Powell at the State Department and also worked with Powell at the Joint Chiefs. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. All right, your turn, your rant. What do you, what do you make of this, the current situation? The first thing I would, I would observe as a military professional is that Clausewitz said in book eight, I think, beware of the vividness of transient events. This is a transient event. What, what does that mean? Well, let's put it in the context of 
Grant in Virginia when he finally takes over the bulk of the Union forces and he's pursuing Lee relentlessly through Virginia and he's asleep one night in his tent and an aide runs in all breathless and says, General, wake up, Lee's on your flank. And Grant thinks for a second, looks at the aide, thanks him and rolls over and goes back to sleep. That's what a transient event is. And that's what we should be doing, rolling over and going back to sleep, as it were. Because at worst, Putin is probably going to consolidate his hole on the two westernmost oblasts, which he pretty much already owned anyway. East, Eastern. And, you said Western. You meant Eastern? Yeah, Eastern. Sorry, Eastern yeah. oblast. And probably, if I were he anyway, militarily I'm speaking now, I would carve out a 50 kilometer wide, maybe corridor down to Odessa because Odessa is a more important port than any port in Crimea. And that's what Russia's Navy and Russia's military in general is probably, probably uh, salivating over. So why does that affect the security of the United States? Is a fundamental question. Ukraine was in the Soviet Union for 70 freaking years of the Cold War. And they did not threaten the United States of America, nor did they threaten NATO. Russia did. Moscow did. In fact, the nuclear weapons in Ukraine could not have been shot by anyone in Kiev or anywhere else in Ukraine. The codes and the firing commands came from Moscow. Ukraine is not a threat now to the United States. So why are we even paying any attention to this? Well, the reason is, as I learned last night, as I watched on Harry Melber's six o'clock show on MSNBC and listened to all these pontificators pontificate, the reason is, get this now, we have found the issue that is brought by partisanship back to the Congress of the United States. War, rumors of war brings bipartisanship back to the Congress of the United States. Are you falling over in shock yet? This is what we're all about today. We are a national security state. We are a military industrial complex supporting that state. And that's how you bring Americans, sad to say, and their congressional leaders together is rumors of war and threats of war. And one of the things I wanted to ask all those commentators last night who were advocating for the United States to take maximum action, where's your rifle and bayonet and when will you be in the front lines, you son of a bitch? The, the profit making of all the military industrial complexes, and I, and, and I have to say you're completely right as an American to focus on the American military-industrial complex, which is certainly driving this. And, and, and more than driving this, the government in the Ukraine, which was really this lineage of this government really begins in 2014, in a coup more or less orchestrated by the United States, where Biden himself actually had a hand in, the, uh, in, the, in what happened in the coup and the events afterwards. And when Putin talks about... Um, the denazification of Ukraine. American media kind of ridicules him when he says that. But it's actually very true. It, there are a lot of Nazis in that regime. It's very true. And the CIA was funneling arms and training and helping those neo-Nazis in Ukraine, just like they have done people like them all over the globe.
just like they did in Venezuela, just like they did in Syria, just like they were doing in Iraq. The CIA doesn't care if you're a neo-Nazi. They're going to fund you if you're on their side for a moment or two. That's the way they do things. They, they, were, they were actually working with al-Qaeda in Syria, working with al-Qaeda. We actually had a firefight in Syria where the military was shooting at what they thought were al-Qaeda. They had to cease and desist because they were shooting at the CIA helping al-Qaeda. That's how dastardly we do things in the world today. And the hypocrisy here, you didn't even touch it, Paul. You didn't even touch it. We have gone to war in Iraq. We have gone to war in Syria. We have gone to war in Libya. We have stayed in Afghanistan well beyond our writ. We tried to overthrow Maduro in Venezuela and Hugo Chavez before him. We have had an embargo for 60 years now on Cuba. We violate international law at our will. And it's almost a daily thing now. So if you want to look at some hypocrites, the hypocrites live in Washington. No doubt. But I do want to say and ask, it seems to me the real issue here was Donbass, the eastern region of Ukraine, which is primarily populated by Russian-speaking people, which as far as we know, want to be independent of uh, the Ukrainian, western Ukrainian state, which is very much a, a an extension of U.S. power and think, populated by, that, sorry, yeah, go ahead. I, think most, I think you're right about most of them in that western, uh, easternmost oblast. I think it's a toss-up in the other oblast, but it's a majority of Russian speakers and Russian affinity, people with Russian affinity. And we're Putin to say, as I just said, if this truly is a transient event, we shouldn't pay much attention to. If he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do and just solidify his control there and then stop, then we've got a whole different situation. We need to spin out what, whatever comes out of that into talks on more important things, things that are serious threats, like nuclear weapons, like the climate crisis. We need to start talking about some very serious issues in this world that only Russia, especially with regard to nuclear weapons, because she's the largest holder of nuclear weapons in the world outside of us, about eight to 9,000 apiece now. Um, China, for example, has three or 400. Uh, no one comes close to Russia and no one comes close to us. And this is a real existential threat we're looking at, this new lease on life that nuclear weapons have, largely because we've destroyed the ABM treaty, the INF treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, you name the treaty that was good for nuclear arms control, and we've destroyed it. We almost destroyed under Trump New START. Thank God we didn't do that one. We didn't go all the way. We still have that. And thank God Putin was willing to do it. Those are the serious issues that really threaten American security. We need to get out of this focus on these transient events and get into the real issues. But that's not where the money is. No, you're right. You're right. You've got to keep rumors of war and war in order to keep Lockheed Martin, Grumman, Boeing, United Technologies, all these people feasting on the monstrous cash that comes from war. You know, I look back on Halliburton and my, my two real close experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Halliburton made $44 billion 
off Iraq and Afghanistan. I think Pfizer only made 26 billion off its COVID vaccine. There's no good players in this situation. Number one creator of the Ukraine crisis is the United States. Uh, Most recently, the 2014 coup. But also, the United States could have taken NATO off the table, uh, and so could the rest of Europe, because the whole thing's ridiculous anyway, because everybody knows they will never get consensus in NATO for the inclusion of Ukraine. Well, think about this, Paul. You've got a good point there, but think about this, Ron. 30 nations now. But think about this. You go out across the Mississippi toward the west, go up into Minnesota, go down into Texas, come back into Alabama and Mississippi and ask people where these countries are and they can't find them on a map. And then you tell them, do you realize you're you're signed up for nuclear war for Montenegro? Do you know where Montenegro is? Do you know what Montenegro is probably the biggest automobile theft center in the world? None of these countries should have gotten into NATO strictly based on the requirements to be a NATO member. But we sort of massaged those. The corruption is so high. The crime is so high. They shouldn't have gotten in. But these countries are now part of Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all. If someone were to attack Montenegro, we would have to risk nuclear war for that country. What American is going to sign up to that? Now, people say to me, and they have a point, oh, who's going to attack Montenegro? Who's going, who, who's going to attack Ukraine? Who's going to attack Georgia? You know, my president went to Tbilisi and with Saakashvili by his side, the young Georgian president at the time, declared that Georgia would be a member of NATO. Putin took two oblasts there, too. <laughs> Don't blame him a bit from his perspective. That's how stupid we are. That's how strategically inept we are. We have made Putin politically, domestically. We've given him the poll ratings to stay in power. And we've given him the mistakes, big mistakes, which he can exploit, even though he's playing with two aces and we have a ham with seven aces in it. We just don't know how to play. Uh, You mentioned Sakasvili from Georgia. Uh, who was uh, one of the most corrupt leaders Georgia has ever had uh, <laughs> and and was eventually run out of the country under after ch- he escaping charges of corruption after he collaborated with John McCain originally to try to create this crisis with Russia. He, where does he go? Shakasvili winds up in the Ukraine, gives up his Georgian citizenship. And then when Odessa has an uprising against this right-wing fascist Ukrainian government, the Russian-speaking mostly Odessa, this guy, Shakasvili, is appointed governor of Odessa and paid $200,000 a year to govern and gives up his Georgian citizenship. I mean, the guy's got to be a CIA asset. The, the thing is this, I, is, is nope, that... The only, thing, the only thing I would say to that is I'm surprised that it isn't a U.S. citizen and a graduate of West Point. Well, uh, he's got to be. He's got my friends in the army occupy the Ministry of Defense in Georgia now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing thing is, most of what what the Russians say about the Ukrainians is true, but much of what the Ukrainians, Americans also say about the Russians is true. Putin didn't have to do this, and, and you and I were talking in the lead up to all this. 
Uh, and we were both saying, well, I can't see him doing it. It's, it just doesn't make sense strategically for Russia to have a, an all-out invasion of the Ukraine, even if his objectives are limited. Like right now, it seems his objectives are, and now I'm quoting a, a Chinese military analyst in the Chinese-English press who says Putin's objectives are to destroy the Ukrainian armed forces. Well, that requires killing a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, which is ordinary Ukrainian workers. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to create such a sever, severance with, with Europe and, and, the, and the, much of the world. Why didn't he just fill up Donbass with Russian troops and leave it at that? Well, this, this may be disinformation, too. It may be coming from the Chinese innocently or on purpose. But I would say this to that. Were I the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and I in the Oval Office alone with the President of the United States, and he asked me for my military advice on this, my first comments would be about the transient event. But then I would say, Mr. President, now here's my serious advice if it's not a transient event. If Putin really does have something truly heinous in mind for Ukraine, not just solidifying his control over the oblast that he already pretty much controls, but really something serious, let him do it. In two years, he'll be out of power. The Russian armed forces will look worse than they look when they came out of Afghanistan after 10 years. Russia's state will be collapsing. It'll be five times worse than when the Soviet Union collapsed because they have nothing but gas stations. They have no economy. And what we've got even though we've ruined many aspects of it over the last 20 years, $30 trillion in debt we're headed towards by 2030, we still have so much strategic debt, economically, financially, and otherwise, than he does. Just wait him out. Ukraine will be his graveyard, as Afghanistan looked like it was going to be for us. Wait him out. It won't take 20 years. It won't take 10. He'll be finished in two. 40 Vermont divisions got caught in the Balkans and got run over by people like Tito and others, whom I'm sure there are a few of in Ukraine. And we'll wind up with a real mess, but the mess will be predominantly for Putin and for Russia. I mean, that's a cold assessment of the situation. I you're, you're, you're saying if he actually tries to install he, a pro-Russian yeah, government in Kiev. Yeah. Yeah, because how does he how does he defend how does he defend it? Well, that's that's my point. That's my point. He but he turns himself. He had interior lines. He could surround Ukraine virtually. The only place he couldn't get was the other side, but he was on the top. He can come in from the Black Sea on the bottom. He's, he's got him surrounded on three sides. But if he goes in there and he fights a long-term insurgency inside Ukraine, he's finished. He's toast. Which, which, which then one would conclude that's not the plan. But if the plan I, I is... I can't believe that. He's a smart man. Yeah. I mean, much as I detest him, he kills people with nuclear pellets. I detest him, but he's a smart man. And everything he's done up to this point, exploiting our mistakes in Syria, in Libya, in uh, everywhere we've made a mistake, <laughs> he's exploited. Georgia, now Ukraine. 
I can't believe he's going to be stupid now. He could be, but I, I have a hard time following that track record of strategic adeptness and suddenly seeing doing something like that. Yeah, well, then one would kick- my, my only I, advice is if he does do it, let him do it. Well, I I mean, I'm beyond making any predictions right now because I don't understand why he did what he just did because he could have defended the Donbass region without trying to destroy the entire Ukrainian military and he didn't have to move towards Kiev and and it's looking a lot it's looking a lot like I hope I'm wrong, but it's looking a lot like what Clausewitz also says about passion. You know, war is an extension of policy with an admixture of violence or with other means, however you want to translate the German. That's Clausewitz's famous definition of war. What people forget is what he said about what it isn't when it's outside that realm, when there isn't any sanity to the objective. There isn't a political objective, and the political objective is reachable and so forth. Then it becomes absurd. That's Clausewitz's term, absurd. It becomes absurd. That's what we're talking about. If Putin is doing what you and I just described, it's absurd. And he's going to lose. He's going to lose big time. I agree. But I also think what he's doing now is absurd, because if if the real issue is the defense of Donbass, which I believe it is, because I I think this NATO thing's a red herring, because Ukraine was never going to get into NATO, so if I'm right about that, the real issue is Donbass, and that's a real issue, and it's an issue that's very uh, dear to the heart of most Russians. So the defense of Donbass, he would have had popular support. But, it's also, it, but it, let me it, just finish right this about, point. Let me just finish this point. But this move beyond Donbass does not have popular support in Russia. And, and no. if, if, there was, if it was legal to have protests against this war— People I talk to in Russia say there would be massive protests against what's what's taking well, place. They already right have now. been, but I mean massive. These people that are yeah. doing it are very brave because they are uh, getting arrested. Yes, they are. They are. The other aspect of it that probably a lot of Russians don't understand, other than the Navy and maybe a few people in the uh, what, what what is the equivalent of their National Security Council, is Crimea and Odessa are almost. They're, they're almost the sine qua non of a Southern naval strategy. You almost have to have that because if you don't, you, it's like China in the South China Sea. You know, people want to know why the Dash 9 line? Why, why does China make all these claims? Well, you can't race your fleet into action. You can't get out. You can't fight. You're destroyed before you even get out of port or out of the waters around your port. That's what China's facing. So you've got to have this buttress. You've got to have this. They can't have Turkey closing the strait, for example. They're going to force the strait. Well, maybe they could, but then they've got war with the Turks, and I'm sure they don't want that. So you need this space to unlimber your fleet, so to speak, and to get it out into action. And that's their southern access, the Black Sea, Odessa, Crimea, and so forth. So I can understand why some admirals would be really pushing Putin. I got to have this. I got to have this. I got to have this. Let's assume the strategy of Putin is to destroy the Ukrainian military, pull back, take the entire region of Donbass, and 
as he has now recognized, uh, both in, uh, I always screw up the names of these things, so I'm going to look at them again, uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk and beyond in the entire region, and, and, and allow that to be independent, as he's already recognized, and defend that. And he's now disabled the Ukrainian military in theory so that they can no longer threaten Donbass. Was it, why was it worth it? Why he, he, you, know, the, if the, you know, there were certainly lots of voices in Europe and elsewhere that NATO was pointless. Why a NATO? Uh, there were divisions in NATO. We, you and I, in a, in a previous interview, were talking about how almost war was dividing it, NATO. But actual war is uniting NATO, and it is. I mean, where right. the hell is the strategic victory uh, for him in this? I don't get it. It would have been a strategic victory in my mind had he done what we were saying in the beginning. If he had taken those two sections, maybe assured his access a little bit further west in terms of the Black Sea and stopped and just presented that as a fait accompli and then gone into negotiations and held on to as much as he could before he makes some kind of deal or whatever, like the Minsk agreement. Um, I don't understand this if he goes further. Now, he hadn't yet. You, you have to remember, as I was listening last night as we were uh, participating in Ari's show, a lot of these people are pontificating. A lot of these people don't know what they're talking about. They throw a map up and they say here and there and everywhere. And you got to have somebody tell me what's going on on the ground, what is actually happening. Where is the front of the tank? Where is the front of the fuel loader? Where are the aircraft dropping their bombs and so forth? I've got a little bit of that picture now, but I don't see this full onslaught on the entire tapestry of Ukraine yet. No, I mean, we're doing this interview Friday afternoon, February 25th, I think it is, right? The 25th? Yeah. And so far, we haven't seen that. Now, if you listen to Putin's words, uh, demilitarization, uh, from what I can make out and what this Chinese analyst says means, just like it sounds, destroy a lot of the, if not most of the Ukrainian military, which means army, navy, and air force. But he went further. Denazification... And holding criminals accountable for crimes committed, which I think to a large extent means the crimes committed in Odessa and in Debas region during and after 2014, and there were crimes, and there are Nazis to be denazified. But that means you got to capture these people. Denazification so means run them out of the country or capture them and put them on trial. And what's new about Odessa? Odessa's been a center of crime for what, how, many, how many years? How many millennia? <laughs> I mean, read Alan first. <laughs> He's writing about, uh, what, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, the years before World War II, the years off World War II. And Odessa is the place where you go if you want to be a criminal. Uh, it's it's kind of like Cosa Nostra in Sicily. You know, so so what, what is this newfound desire to purify Odessa and the regions around? It's kind of like Marseille in France, you know. People used to tell me when I was down in Provence, don't go to Marseille. Ooh, that's bad. That's a bad place. <laughs> Went there. It wasn't so bad. But I do understand that there's a lot of crime there. And I do understand there's a lot of crime in Odessa. And some of the smartest criminals on the face of the earth live in the families in Odessa. So 
what's this deal that you got to go clean Odessa up now? That sounds to me like rhetoric. So I don't, anyway, there's a lot of this I don't get, and I don't get Putin's strategy here. It seems to me there was a much wiser course, but I do, at least I condemn Russia for what they're doing. I condemn any war that where working class kids fight working class kids so oligarchs can get richer. And first and foremost, I condemn the American oligarchy who do that more than anybody. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, with you on all of that. But uh, where this all ends up, I don't know. And uh, I think I got a, I got a thing down on my panel down there that Kate Gould from the Friends Committee for National Legislation gave me. And I look at it every day as I go down to my washing machine. Now that I don't have a wife, I have to wash my own clothes. It says war is not the answer. And then there's a little, you know, era. And it says war is still not the answer. <laughs> and it is not the answer today more than it has ever not been the answer in the last five millennia. Because today we are going to disappear from this planet in less than two generations if we don't do something really fast and effective. About climate. So, yes. So th this business of going to war when we should be going to war, metaphorically speaking, against the changing climate to ameliorate it, adapt and ameliorate this report that's coming out on 28 February in the 300, I think it's 300 page summary. It's the part, it's the only part of the report that's approved by every country. Every country signs up to it. The technical section in the major body of the report essentially says, and it's reflected in the summary, but they don't get as dramatic. It essentially says, you do not really want to live in a 1.5 degree world. You can't live in a two plus degree world. Right. And guess what? We're headed for three or four. And no one's talking about it at all now. Now it's all Ukraine. That's the other thing war does. It gets everyone's attention. Look at this bipartisan. Mitch McConnell was up talking positively about Biden and about doing something about Ukraine. That permagant, <laughs> I mean, when, this is when, unity. When, when in trouble, be a wartime president. That's it. That's it. You want to get reelected, George? Go out and get yourself a war. Oh, I think I'll go to Iraq. I'll get reelected. Daddy didn't get reelected, but I will. Watch me get reelected. I'll time my war right. Okay, final question. And I want to go back to something you said earlier. Both countries, Russia and the United States, have essentially doomsday machines. Um, both countries have a, a nuclear war strategy, if I understand it correctly. If conventional war be, broke out directly between U.S. and Russian troops, and one side looks like it could be losing, both sides have a strategy of, of using nuclear weapons. So explain to us, what, what is this doomsday machine that both countries have, and how dangerous is that? Your favorite topic from the past is the doomsday machine, in my mind, submarines. The submarines that are out there now, if I'm being informed correctly, soon to have tactical nuclear weapons on them. That is to say, a boomer will be sailing around with all these 
strategic missiles on it, but it'll have a few smaller ones that it can shoot at a Soviet incursion in the NATO or whatever, the way the Soviets now, or not the Soviets, but the Russians, the way, that, way their official doctrine since about 2014 in writing says if NATO penetrates, they'll hit the head of the penetration and the flanks of the penetration with tactical nuclear weapons. So they have expressed that in doctrine that they will hit them. So we had to come back and we had to say, we're gonna develop a weapon that'll be the same thing. That's the reason we had to cancel the INF treaty so we could build this weapon. So look at what we're doing. Now, I'm having a real problem and I know something about submarines. I wrote my master's thesis as it were on attack submarines in support of the battle group at the Naval War College. I'm having a little problem with how does someone in Moscow identify when that door opens and that missile comes out of that ballistic missile submarine, that it's not a strategic missile, <laughs> that it's just a tactical missile <laughs> and unleash hell, you know, because you don't have much time. You know, you've got to make a decision pretty fast. This is another thing. We've let it devolve to where now the leaders of these countries, the two most dangerous, Moscow and Washington, of course, they can make a decision on the, on the split second when they don't know they've only got maybe 28 minutes to make that decision. And there's no time to see if everything's right. And we've made so many mistakes in the past. This is not a place where we want to be. This is not a place where anybody wants to be, where you only got a few seconds and you're going to die and your whole nation be wiped out if you don't make the right decision. And if you make the right decision, you're going to die and the whole nation is going to be wiped out. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're insane, Paul. We're absolutely insane. And part of that insanity is thinking that one side could use a tactical nuclear weapon and it doesn't spiral into nuclear war. Like it's impossible because whoever's losing that exchange has to go to another stage of nuclear yes. weapons. No one's going to accept losing. When we were briefed on this the very first time, it was some time ago, it was right after their 2012 maneuvers, I think, their core size maneuvers. Uh, the Finns and the Swedes had been observers and they were at the Center for Naval Analyses in Washington and they were briefing us on what they'd seen. They were predicting at that time that it would be the next year it would go into actual published doctrine. Um, and that was the reaction of everybody in the room was, where did we lose this knowledge we gained during the Cold War that if you use them, you're going to go all the way? There's, there's, there's no, you know, you don't do a McNamara gradual escalation with nuclear weapons. You shoot one, they're gone. You know, I mean, you're going to wind your way all the way down to the end, and it is going to be truly the end. We've lost that knowledge. We've lost that kind of, I've got my feet in the Cold War and I understand nuclear theory, especially escalation theory. We had to lecture Delhi and Islamabad on that in 2002 because they didn't know. They hadn't been through a Cold War. They didn't know the kind of thinking that we had gestated over those years from very smart people about how a nuclear exchange would wind up ultimately. And I think it, it sobered Musharraf and it, showed, it, it sobered Delhi too, especially the civilians, I think, maybe not so much the military, but they, they had not thought this through. They didn't understand if I shoot 20, he's gonna shoot eh, 40, yeah, I'm gonna shoot 100. And then the stockpiles are gone and we're all burning. And by the way, we wiped out all the agriculture from roughly Washington to California too. 
with the nuclear winter that comes from that. You've seen the studies of what would happen if Pakistan. Well, and India- well, if just Pakistan and India wipes out much of the world's agriculture, but an American uh, Russian nuclear war not only wipes oh, out the northern hemisphere over. with radiation, but it wipes out agriculture across the entire world, which is essentially it's the over. end of human yeah. life. Uh, you know, you're mentioning that brings to mind something I read this morning that I hope is not true. Why in the world would he be bombing the radioactive waste around Chernobyl? No, no, he wasn't bombing it. They captured it. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, Apparently, the reasoning was to capture Chernobyl because they were afraid someone, I don't know if it's Ukrainian armed forces or some fascist forces, might try to use the Chernobyl waste as a uh, kind of sense. weapon to try to weaponize what's in Chernobyl. Is okay. that a re- that makes sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. That was one of our gravest concerns right after 9-11. Wasn't so much that they would have a, a small yield nuclear weapon and explode it in a major American city. It was that they would have a dirty bomb. And because a dirty bomb is not that inconceivable. And I just have to say, and you've said it and I've said it, but I'm gonna say it again. They're risking a pop- apocalypse for the sake of making money. It's that's the most insane thing of it all. Although there's a crazy rationality to it. There is, if you're one of these short-term dudes who's a billionaire and you know just sucking down the good life every minute of every hour, and no vision for the future at all, and no no give a damn about grandchildren, the future, our posterity. One of the things that just stuns me, Paul is how far we've come from people who were willing to risk their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor. And now we don't even think about our posterity. It's not even in our thoughts. COVID has proven it to me. COVID has proven it to me. No one cares about other people anymore. All right, thanks very much, Larry. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news. And please don't forget, there's a donate button, subscribe, share. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that little bell up there, which in theory is supposed to tell you uh, when a new story goes up. Although I'm hearing from subscribers who have rung the bell that YouTube is not letting them know when our stories go up. So the most important thing is go to the website, get on our email list, and then you actually will know when our stories go up. Uh, Thanks again, Larry, and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news.